How many of you guys have uh, watched the movie Jerry Maguire? Anyone? Okay, good. Remember that scene in the movie when uh, Tom Cruise comes looking for his wife and he begins that scene with the word hello? You know, we had a very, very big day in the company, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't nearly the same because you weren't there. I couldn't share it with you and so on. And afterwards, he says, I missed my wife. I love you. You complete me. Remember that scene? I remember watching that movie as a single man thinking, you complete me. That's really good. I'm going to pull that out at some point. This romantic idea that someone or something could complete us may sell tickets, get people to go watch a movie, but it's a lie. Yesterday, uh, as I was officiating my uh, nephew's wedding, you know, he looked stunning. She looked beautiful. I mean, you know, there were tears of joy. And it was just a beautiful day. And um, as uh, we were wrapping things up, I, I couldn't get myself to say it, but I looked at two, the two of them and, and basically thought, I'll give you about a month. <laughs> I'm not a pessimist. I take sin seriously, you know. Um, and our only hope, again, is in the Lord. And that was the message that I was trying to get across. That even though today is a beautiful day and you guys look amazing, and this day would be someday, this would be the day that you would look back on in years to come, it's not enough to sustain you. You need something else, something better. And I think that's what the psalmist says here in Psalm 23. You see, when you play such expectation, this God-like expectation, as Tim Keller said, on people or on things, you will be disappointed. You will. The reason is spelled out for us in the opening pages of the Bible. You see, ever since we've removed God from the very center of our hearts, we have been left to fill in that gap ourselves. And no matter how good, true, and beautiful someone or something is, God cannot be replaced. And the ache that we live with, the angst that we often feel and sense in our heart, only confirm what the Bible calls sin. That something is broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And we need a solution outside of ourselves. Someone or something better than us. Someone or something greater than our wisdom and power and the sum of our resource. And David understood this. He was a king after all as he's writing the psalm. He was king at the height of Israel's economic strength and military power. Yet despite all of his power, wealth, and famine, David couldn't find a remedy for his restless heart. Not in the throne, not in the influence, not in all the things that he had at his disposal. It took a song, a trip down the memory lane for him to understand yet again that the solution is not in him, not in this world, but in his Savior, his shepherd, his God. So let's look at two things together this morning. First, let's look at God, the shepherd. David says in the banner verse, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I mean, we could park it here all morning and unpack this verse. It is so loaded and rich. So let's unpack it 
a bit before we move on. Notice David does not say, because of my power, because of my wealth, or because of my fame, I shall not want. Rather, he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And we Washingtonians need to be reminded of this often. David does not go on to say, I do not lack anything because the Lord is my shepherd. Rather, he says, I shall not lack. You know what David is saying here? David is basically saying that God is enough. He does not say, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I have everything I could ever want. Rather, he says, the Lord is my shepherd, and that is enough. A.W. Tozer, a preacher from a generation ago, said this, the man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. For having the source of all things, he has in one all satisfaction, all pleasure, and all delight. The Lord is my shepherd, and he is enough. And the only way we can experience this rich relationship, life-giving relationship with God, is not simply to know Him as a Savior, but to know Him as my Savior. The Lord is my shepherd. As long as the Lord is someone else's shepherd, you are living off of borrowed conviction and secondhand stories. But when you understand Him to be your shepherd the one who is intimately involved in all the details of your life, you will find him to be everything he promises to be. And you too will be able to say with David, he's enough. He's enough. And here, David, not really understanding Christ and everything that's to come in the New Testament already calls us to the, the kind of shepherd our king will be, doesn't he? He says, the Lord, Adonai, the glorious one, the creator God, is my humble shepherd. And Jesus picks up on this theme in the New Testament. He says, I am the good shepherd. The word who was from the beginning, who was God, with God, became man to dwell among us, took on flesh, to become a servant, a shepherd, to care for lowly sheep like us. See, this is the core of the Christian message, and it's a radical one, that God, the glorious one, he would take the low place to serve us, his people well. How does he serve us? Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Despite the desert-like conditions, the shepherd leads his sheep to green pastures and still waters. And uh, I don't have a whole lot of farm experience, so I, I couldn't really appreciate this metaphor. And maybe you share that with me. But there are two things worth noting here. First, what does it mean for God to serve us in this way? First, it means that God provides for all of our needs. He provides for all of our needs. Sheep are afraid of everything, including running water, and for a good reason, because they don't know how to swim. And even if they knew how to swim, their fur would soak up all that water. They'll go straight to the bottom. 
There is no way they will ever get themselves to swim from point A to point B, regardless of how many lessons they take. And that's why the shepherd would create a pool of standing water and invite his sheep to come and drink from it. Our God, he provides for us, does he not? He provides daily bread, daily grace to sustain us spiritually and physically. He provides a community of people where we can come together every week and throughout the week in our small groups to speak truth into one another, to speak grace into one another's lives, to build up the body of Christ together. He provides us with everything we need for life and for godliness. And he provides us with opportunities to serve him and to serve the city. To be the hands and feet of Christ. To not only declare, but to demonstrate the goodness of God and all the things that he has accomplished for us and will do for us. But secondly, it also means that our shepherd, our God, protects. Certainly, he protects us from our enemies but I love this. He protects us from ourselves. Did you know sheep have an overeating disease which often lead to death? Like if you let them eat, they will eat till they die. What a humbling thought. And so the shepherd would have to force them to lie down in green pastures to say that's enough. You had your fill. And I love this imagery because that is me. I don't know it, but left to my own devices, I would kill myself. I know the tendency in my own heart, and I sense that. In the quiet moments, even as I drive through Washington, D.C. and see out-of-state license plates, I sense in my own heart anger and frustration. Like, why are you here? <laughs> and that's just a small glimpse of the deeper things that are buried in my heart that I'm not even aware of. The Puritans used to say that the seed of every sin is in our hearts, and if it weren't for the grace of God that restrained that, I would surprise myself with all kinds of evil. And I am so glad that God saves me from me. That he leads me from all kinds of temptations that I'm not even aware of. That he's orchestrating thousands of things every day to keep me on this path. Because he knows exactly how much I can handle. You know, I praise God for unanswered prayers. Because sometimes I pray for things that would destroy me. And it's only in hindsight, years later, I say, whew, praise God that he did not answer that prayer. To be able to even acknowledge that is great in itself. But in the moment for God to say, no, that's not the best for you. What grace that is for us. He is our shepherd he cares for us. He provides for us. He protects us. There are, however, a few things sheep are really good at. Okay? One thing they excel in is stubbornness. Sheep always wander off constantly without any sense of danger therein. 
and they are as defenseless as they come. No wonder God calls us sheep. You know, they, they make these like really cute figurines, right? Precious moment figurines with the little shepherd boy, eyes as big as his head. That's Jesus, you know. But really, it's, it's saying that we are like sheep and we're always wandering away from the Lord. You know, one day, the presence of sin will be no more. <sighs> Praise God for that. But in the meantime, we keep on struggling against sin by his grace for us. And let me say to you, saints, regardless of your track record, if you sense in your heart, even today, in this season that you're going through, a desire to fight sin, to be holy, to choose righteousness, to choose Christ over sin, regardless of how messy that looks like, it's evidence of God's grace in your life, and you should celebrate that. That's a reality. That's our hearts. It's always wandering. It's always going every which way except to the Lord. And that's why I love the hymn, Come Thy Fount. The words, let thy grace like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander. Ooh, Lord, you know and I know. I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And when we pray like that, the Lord answers Verse 3, he leads me in paths of righteousness. What does it mean? It means two things. First, it means that God leads us in the path of righteousness where we become more and more Christ-like in our moral character. But it also means something else. In Jewish version of the scripture, the phrase righteous acts of God is translated as the kindness of God, the gracious deliverance of God. In other words, when David says God leads us in the paths of righteousness, he is certainly saying that he is growing us in our moral character, but he's also is saying that he has put us on a path where we experience grace upon grace, forgiveness upon forgiveness, deliverance after deliverance because God knows we need it. Even after we say, God, here's my heart, take it, seal it for you and you alone, God knows. I, I, I know. I know that's your heart. That's your desire. But I know you're going to go back on your words. You're going to fail. You're going to fall short. You're going to forget. But I will forgive you. I will restore you. I will carry you in my arms. And this is the path we're on, the path of righteousness, where we experience the righteousness of God, not in this wrath-vengeful way, because that was all done on the cross. But now it's favor, grace, forgiveness, acceptance. It's the attaboy. You're really trying. I am so proud of you. That was good. Don't we feel like that sometimes in our spiritual walk? Sometimes it's two steps forward and three steps back. God does not come with a chart to show us the three steps back. No, he says, that was so good. That was so good. Come on, let's get back up and let's try again. 
And this is the path that we are on by grace and grace alone. But he doesn't always lead us to green pastures and still waters. At times he leads us, as the scripture says, through the valley of the shadow of death. Why? If God is a good God, a God who provides and protects, why does he then lead us through the valley of the shadow of death? The answer is to draw us closer to him. You see, it's in the valley that we sense his nearness. Because so often, in the success of green pastures, we forget. And before long, our hearts are inclined toward these things, these gifts that we're to receive and celebrate, but not worship. And that line gets blurry real quickly, does it not? The things, the gifts that God gives to us that are to take us, then point us to our God, all of a sudden become gods themselves. And we hold on to them. And it's hard to let go. And it takes the valley of the shadow of death for us to realize, I don't need this. This can't save me. Only he can. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, verse 4 says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. C.S. Lewis chose the metaphor Shadowlands to describe this broken world. And we all feel the pain and disappointment of living in Shadowlands from time to time. But for some of us, it's a place of permanent residence until Christ returns. But here's the good news, even for those of you struggling with ongoing pain and disappointment, unmet desires and longings, prayers that sometimes go unanswered, here's the good news, that our God inhabits the valley of shadow of death for you. And this is what the cross is all about. And because he went to hell and back for you and I, we never have to walk through the valley of death itself but only the shadow. And shadow is not all bad. As Charles Spurgeon once said, when there is shadow, there must be light. Meaning, the valley of the shadow of death is not our destination. Christ does not lead us to the valley of shadow of death and leave us, he does not leave us there. It's so that we can sense his nearness reorient our hearts again to him and look to the future glory that's promised to us so that we would look to the promise that is to come. In the meantime, we walk by faith. One day we will walk by sight. And that's the longing and prayer of our hearts. And Christ wants us to get on that. Not get sidetracked with all these things. See, Jesus knows that sometimes we need the valley because it's good for us. Sometimes suffering, pain, and hardship, they heighten our sense of his nearness. It's his severe mercy, as one author said. You see, despite our pain and dis disappointment, all of us who have been with the Lord long enough, we have testimonies of how God 
has deepened our faith. He has grown our character and refined our hope in the valley. In other words, Christians, our suffering, our disappointment, our unanswered prayers, if you will, they, they're not waste. Rather, it's, it achieves the weight of glory in us, the glory of Christ-likeness. But here's the thing. We can miss all this if all we're looking for in the valley is a quick solution and not a savior. If we are looking for that escape hatch and we say, God, get me out of this right now, we miss the chance to sit before the Lord and let him do the hard and difficult work of shaping us, refining us into the likeness of his son. And if we really understand that this is what's going on, that God is in the business of transforming us into the likeness of his son through the valleys we go through, and even in the valley, we can say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Let's move to our second point. God the king. He's not just a shepherd who cares and protects, for, uh, protects us, but he's the king who lavishes us with grace upon grace. Let's read verse 5 together. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. The picture here is not just a gathering of friends, but it's an extravagant banquet. It's a victory celebration honoring the champion before his captives. And David knows very well that he is not worthy of this kind of honor. He looks back at his life. And he knows there are those oops moments. You know what I'm talking about? Sure, there are moments when he went and fought Goliath, these highlight moments that he could sort of fall back on and, and, and give himself a pat on the back to say, that was really good. But then there's that whole chapter with Bathsheba. Oops. And there's the whole chapter about being an absent dad. Oops. And then there's a whole chapter about his son wanting to dethrone him and actually get rid of him. Oops. And he knows that he doesn't deserve this kind of honor. Yet God brings him to the center of the table, the seat of honor. And he bestows honor and glory upon David. And he knows he doesn't deserve it. What's going on here? You see, the king... The real king, the true king, the true victor, he gives credit where credit is not due. You see, when we put our faith and trust in the Lord, he gives us his perfect righteousness. He calls us more than conquerors and really enlists us as co-heirs with Christ and in the center of this banquet table is a cup. And the cup is an empty cup first before it fills up. 
And when we look at this cup, this empty cup, we realize that that empty cup represents the cup of wrath. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, God talks about this cup of wrath and who would dare to even drink, even a sip from it. No one can bear under the wrath of God, yet this cup is empty because Christ drank the cup of wrath completely down to its last drop. And that is cause for celebration for God's people. To know that there is no judgment hanging over us. When we look at this cup, we, we look into it, there's nothing left. There's no more for you and I to drink from. No more for you and I to go and face our sin. Because Christ has drank it all. And just as we celebrate the empty cup of wrath, God takes another cup, the cup of joy, the cup of salvation, and he pours it. Not just half full or three quarter full. I mean, it is just spilling over. And it's the cup of joy. And he says, come drink. Drink deeply from this cup of joy to celebrate the salvation we have in our king who has secured our victory for us. And that's why we can say, along with David, surely, surely, because the cup of wrath is empty and cup of joy is full, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Um, I think I said this last week, but I became a, a Christian in 1989. And it was part of a very fundamental church where we didn't listen to secular music. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, before 1989, I, I'm with it. Okay, I, I, I'm with you. But after 1989, I don't know who did what. Okay. So I couldn't appreciate the likes of Michael Bublé. Any Michael Bublé fans here? Now, I was uh, driving to a retreat, and I don't know why we have retreats in the middle of nowhere. It's like, a, a, like the opening five minutes to a horror flick. You know? It's like, hey, look at that isolated cabin in the middle of nowhere, right? Uh, horrible things can happen. No, I don't know why we, like, disappear to these scary-looking places for retreats. I was driving to a retreat, and, and I thought for sure I was going to die. You know, uh, seriously, famous last words, right? <laughs> Make a left turn. I, <laughs> that's, that's it. And uh, as I was driving through the mountain ranges, I, I lost all connection. My GPS went like blank, okay? Uh, Pandora shut off. Sun is setting. I'm, I'm thinking, okay, this is, again, a perfect opening to a horror flick, right? And all of a sudden, I make this turn, and, and, and it just clears. There is this huge valley, cascade of mountains, the sun hanging just at the right angle, beautiful colors everywhere, and Pandora kicks back in with Michael Bublé's I Want to Go Home. At that moment, I wanted to make a U-E and say, forget the retreat, I'm going home. Dorothy was right. There's no place like home, right? As crazy as my home is, it's home.
I got four kids, 11, 9, 7, 5. Two girls, two boys. You know what that means? Our house is never clean. We got Lego pieces, books, toys everywhere. We got superhero costumes littered around everywhere. Basketball, soccer ball, baseball, in every corner of the house. And then we have to deal with our two boys fighting over everything. Sometimes they fight over trash, literally trash. They'll find something in the trash can, and once it's claimed, the other wants it. They don't even know what it is, why they want it, but they fight over it. And for all the parents with boys, you know that funny, strange smell in the bathroom, right? I mean, we Clorox our bath, we bleach that thing like all the time, but there is this funny smell in the bathroom, and I just can't ever get rid of it. Despite all this, though, it's home. It's predictable, it's secure, it's comfortable, it's where I belong, it's where I'm known, it's where I'm loved, it's where we share our moments, not good moments all the time, but sweet times of connecting and reaffirming our love for one another. And I think this idea of home appeals to us Washingtonians a bit more, doesn't it? With all the transients in the city, it, it's hard to feel rooted. You get to know someone, and before long, they're packing, they're moving away. And you become jaded. But I think our longing for home, this longing we sense in our heart, is really longing for Eden, a place made for us, a true home. And no matter how hard we try to build our version of Eden here on earth, it will never feel like home. And even as we long to be home with our Father and with all the brothers and sisters, sharing intimate moments of joy, love, I wonder if I'm ever going to make it there. You know what I mean? We know, on the one hand, what theology says. Once saved, always saved, right? The perseverance of the saints. But I look at my own heart, I look at my own life in the past, however many years I've been a follower of Christ. And I wonder, would I make it? Here, David reminds us that we are not alone in this journey. Certainly, we have each other in this journey. Friends for the journey. But we have two guides who will lead us through the rough terrain called life. They are goodness and mercy. And they're not just going to follow us. They're going to pursue us. And if you are running away from the Lord, this is the worst news you'll ever hear. He will never give up on you. He will never give up on you. He will never let you go. The hounds of heaven will pursue you. But for those of us who struggle, and in our honest moments, we're surprised by our own sin, this is good news. He pursues us. The Hebrew word for mercy 
sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for want or lack. And I think here David does, does this intentionally to remind us that God's mercy is the only solution for all the longings of our hearts. Here as David wraps up the psalm, he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why? Because his mercy and goodness will follow me all the days of my life. Despite all of my mistakes, despite all of my shortcomings, despite all the times I stay awake looking back at my day, replaying those words that I wish I could take back. David says, I'm in good company. I'm in good hands. He's going to carry me through. And I think the Lord wants us to hear this message, to know that as we think about the great promises that he has given us both now and in the age to come, yes, there's certainly this aspect of us trying our best to follow the Lord, to walk in this path of righteousness, but it begins first and foremost here, knowing that it's his mercy, his goodness, that undergirds everything. And in our worst moments, we find ourselves in his hands. So let this good word give you strength, give you joy even, as you seek to follow him, even today in this coming week. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that you are our shepherd. And as a good shepherd, you gave everything for us. You laid your life down that we might know your love for us. And Lord, we want to respond to your love by offering our hearts this day to recommit ourselves once again to living for you, your glory, your name, your kingdom, your honor. And I know that we're not going to do it perfectly, and you know that too. And so, Lord, would you give us strength in our hearts, strength that only comes from understanding deeply your goodness and mercy for us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.